Okay, take take four down and bring in two. Exchange them, exchange them. Keep two coming. It's got to clarify. It's got to be clear. More two, more two, more two, more two, more two, more two. Hold it. That's good. Right there. This is Attention, the audio journal for architecture. You are listening to issue four. How musicians think about space. I want to. I want to eventually end up with just one, all by itself, but not nowhere near it yet. It's February 1974, and the pianist Glenn Gould is in the studio giving instructions to a team of sound engineers. He's telling them to fade up and fade down the levels of four stereo recordings. The four recordings are all of the same thing. Gould playing a short piece by the composer Alexander Scriabin. There's only one difference between them. Each recording was made at a different distance from the piano, capturing a different relationship between the piano's direct sound and the surrounding room's reverberation. Gould called this experimental recording technique acoustic orchestration, and he thought it could change the way we experience music. For most of his career as a recording artist, Glenn Gould wasn't interested in any sort of relationship between his piano and the surrounding space. He wanted to capture the pure sound of his instrument, unadulterated by reverberation. And to do this, he had his engineers set up their microphones right next to his piano. His typical pickup was quite close, much closer than most classical pickups. This is Paul Teberge, professor in music at Carleton University. For Bach especially, he was really interested in capturing the inner lines and the intricacies of the counterpoint. So a closer pickup allowed him to get to that precision in the individual lines of the music. This is a 1981 recording of Gould playing Johann Sebastian Bach's Goldberg Variation No. 6. It's a great example of counterpoint, a musical structure in which independent melodies flow into one harmony. It can be complex and dense and fast-paced, and Gould wanted his listeners to hear all that detail. To Gould, the sound of the room beyond his piano was just unwanted noise. Gould was passionate about contrapuntal music, and he could be dogmatic in his approach to communicating it cleanly and clearly. Even when he recorded on the church organ, an instrument that depends on a spacious acoustic for its sonic color and texture, he fought against reverberation, demanding that his engineers put their microphones right up next to the pipes. In 1957, Glenn Gould toured the Soviet Union, and his translator later sent him a score by Alexander Scriabin, a composer Gould had not encountered before. As Gould studied Scriabin's music, he began to question his usual recording aesthetic.
Scriabin is a composer who comes along in the early 20th century, so he's kind of a transitional figure from late Romanticism into an early modernism. That's Professor Teberge again. And he had the idea that he would record all of Scriabin's sonatas, which begin in a very Chopin-esque style, the early sonatas, and then become more and more abstract and more and more personal and more and more uh, chromatic and dissonant. And his idea was that the early sonatas would be uh, recorded in a conventional fashion. And then the later ones would almost require this special technique because Scriabin's language was very uh, diffuse. He had this mystical chord, which contained about six notes in it. So it's a very dissonant chord. And when he moved from one tonality to another within his system, the shift was very subtle on the ears, kind of impressionistic. So he didn't have the kind of hard lines of tonal music that Gould was familiar with. And he felt that this kind of subtle movement required something more to bring out the nuances in it. Gould himself described his frustration and fascination with Scriabin's music in the 1974 documentary, The Alchemist. I don't think that any other composer has ever needed that help from technology as badly as Scriabin does, you know. A man who writes basically in his mature years using one chord, his magic chord, again and again and again, until you think, enough, you know. And yet a man who wanted uh, perfume, color, all the, the, you know, the application of every sensual aspect applied to the perception of the music. The close, clear, and clinical acoustic Gould normally insisted on didn't make sense when applied to Scriabin's impressionistic and sensual musical language. Gould could have simply recorded Scriabin's late piano sonatas with more reverberation, giving them a uniformly gauzy sound. But he began to envision something more plural. We're going to try something which may not work at all. It may fall flat on its face in an experiment because we've never done it before. Um, it will involve a whole sequence of different mic perspectives, uh, I suspect, but I don't know yet, one very close to the piano, almost like a jazz pickup, you know, the kind of thing where you put the microphone right inside the piano and sit it on the lower strings, um, as Oscar Peterson would do, or whatever. Um, another at the sort of discreet Deutsche Grammophon perspective, you know, a nice view from the balcony. And then a uh, more distant perspective still, one possibly which will pick up just resonance, just reverb from the back of the walls of the room, and mix all of these perspectives together. This was Gould's concept for an acoustic orchestration. He would record his piano from different distances, and later mix the recordings together, adjusting their levels over the course of a piece to articulate different aspects of Scriabin's musical language. His basic idea with this was that different passages within the piece that he was recording would require different amounts of ambience. Uh, some might need a great deal of detail and clarity, so he would go for the closer mics. Other passages, he might want a very large sound, diffuse sound, he would go for the back microphones. And he would look at the score that he was recording and think about how he could orchestrate that piece of music, how he could use these different microphones like cameras, he described it in cinematic terms, um, a kind of technique of close-ups, long shots, zooms, cutaways, that kind of thing. To realize the acoustic orchestrations, Gould had to record multiple microphone positions onto separate tapes and then recombine them in the studio. Today, we take multi-tracking for granted. Anyone with a computer and a digital audio workstation can record and overlay multiple recordings. 
That's how we make attention. But then, multi-tracking was still a relatively new technology. Multi-tracking was first popularized in the early 50s by rock and roll pioneer Les Paul. Now that's one guitar knob. If you want two, I just throw a switch. How about three? Easy. In the late 60s, Wendy Carlos brought multi-tracking to classical music, layering individually recorded synthesizer tracks on her seminal electronic album, Switched On Bach. Gould was a fan. He called Switched On Bach one of the great feats in the history of keyboard performance. Les Paul, Wendy Carlos, and many other musicians used multi-tracking to layer instruments. But the technology could also be used to layer acoustical environments. In 1969, Miles Davis superimposed recordings with different degrees of echo and reverb in his experimental masterpiece, Bitches Brew. Glenn Gould first experimented with multi-tracking in 1967 when he produced The Idea of North, a radio documentary for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. In the documentary, Gould choreographed and superimposed voices and sounds recorded in the Canadian Arctic. We seem uh, to be going into nowhere. Knock those people who do claim and through the north we farther, went, farther north and so on. But I see it as a, as a kind of a game, this uh, people saying, well, you know, were you ever up at the North Pole? Gould's experience producing radio documentaries gave him the technological tools required to realize the acoustic orchestrations. In July 1970, armed with a multi-track tape recorder, four pairs of stereo microphones, and a team of recording engineers, Gould arrived at Columbia's 30th Street Studios in New York. Inside the spacious and lofty Studio C, housed in the nave of a converted Presbyterian church, the engineers set up the four microphones at four distances from the piano, and Gould began to play. Here's what the first stereo pair, the one right up inside the piano, picked up. And here's the second pair, just a few feet away. And the third, further back still. And the final pair, facing the wall at the back of the room. The difference from one position to the next is subtle, but there is a clear shift from the closest to the furthest microphones. The closest ones pick up mostly the piano's direct sound, that is, the sound traveling straight from the hammers hitting the strings to the microphone, and it's a sound that is bright, clear, and intimate. The furthest ones pick up mostly the room's reverberation, 
and it's a sound that is warmer, softer, and more spacious. Once he had finished recording, Gould then faced the task of mixing together the individual tracks. At the very beginning of this piece, we heard an excerpt from the documentary The Alchemist of Gould mixing Scriabin's De Morceaux, or Two Pieces. The first piece, Désir, begins at the closest microphones. And then gradually, almost imperceptibly, fades to the mics in the middle of the room. And then finally, ends at the back. The second piece, Caresse Dancée, reverses the spatial sequence, beginning at the back of the room and pulling in towards the piano. In De Morceau, the cinematography is straightforward, a slow zoom in followed by a slow zoom out. Gould had greater ambitions, however, for Scriabin's monumental Sonata No. 5, a piece that Gould's contemporary Sviatoslav Richter called the most difficult in the entire piano repertoire. Gould recorded the sonata, but it remained in the can, the four microphone takes unmixed, until Professor Teberge rediscovered it four decades later. I was doing some research on Gould and his recording techniques, and I discovered some mention of this early Scriabin recording that was done in 1970. And I thought, oh, gee, I've never heard that. I should get a copy of it and have a listen. And when I did, I discovered that it hadn't been mixed in an orchestrational kind of context. It had actually been just a straight stereo reproduction. So I approached Sony and they went into their archive and they called me up and said, look, all we can find is a two-track master that was released in the 80s and uh, the original eight-track session reels from the actual recording session. There were four reels, almost four hours of tape. And they asked, well, would you like to have that? And of course I said, yes. Professor Teberge got to work assembling Gould's multiple takes and mixing the four microphone positions. The only instructions Gould left came from an interview for Rolling Stone in 1974 and covered just the opening passage. He spoke about an opening passage which was quite traumatic. There's a low rumble at the bottom of the piano and then Scriabin, through a series of arpeggios, goes straight to the top of the piano, so from one end to the other. And he calls for a fortissimo, a triple forte at the top of the piano, which is basically almost impossible to achieve because the, the strings are so short and tight up there. It's almost like a hammer hitting on wood. Here's an example of how the opening passage sounds with a more conventional recording setup. The end of the passage is loud, but doesn't quite make the impact demanded by Scriabin's triple forte dynamic. Gould thought this was the perfect moment to really let loose his technique and show what it could do. He starts the low rumbling passage with the furthermost mics, the ones that are facing the wall, so that they're creating really just this, this haze of sound. And as the arpeggios move up the piano, 
he zooms in from the furthest microphone set to the closest ones, the ones that are very close to the strings, and he's actually able to achieve a fortissimo just by focusing in on those close-up microphones. After the opening passage, Teberge was on his own. But by adopting Gould's concept of the sound camera, he was able to create an acoustic orchestration to match the ambition and complexity of Scriabin's Sonata No. 5. Here's one of my favorite passages from Teberge's orchestration, in which he moves between close-ups and long shots by alternating fades and cuts. I think when you sit back and listen to it, you're not so much aware of movement in the sense of choreography or even this zoom, this kind of movement from what he called sound cameras. I'm not aware so much of movement or largeness of the sound as a kind of difference in color. Space in an acoustic orchestration is not an end unto itself. We can track the sound cameras as they move closer to or further from the piano, but according to Professor Teberge, that's not the point. It's how they expose details, heighten moments of drama, and emphasize contrasts in the music. He was really after drama. He was really trying to underline the fundamental shifts and different characters that are in this sonata, and trying to use the microphones almost as a separate set of interpretive tools. He plays it one way at the piano, but the microphones offer another layer of interpretation. Glenn Gould's vision for the acoustic orchestrations was aesthetic but also political. He saw an opportunity to reconfigure the relationship between performer and listener. He described his political intent in the 1969 documentary Variations on Glenn Gould. You know, I have a feeling that the end result of all our labors in the recording studio it's not going to be some kind of autocratic finished product such as we turn out now, but it's going to be a rather more democratic assemblage than that. I think we're going to make kits, and I think we're going to send out these kits to listeners, and we're going to say, do it yourself. Uh, take the assembled components and make of those components something that you genuinely appreciate. And if you don't like the result that you put together the first time, put it together a second time. Be, in fact, your own editor be, in a sense, your own performer. You know, at the time, I think people thought he was kind of crazy, and the idea that just turning the volume knobs was such a minimal kind of engagement with the music that it was insignificant. But he felt that this was really a prerogative that was given to the listener, and that as technology progressed, more and more options were going to be available to the listener. One of the things he didn't do, like other classical musicians, was that he spliced a lot. He cut up his performances and his takes and really assembled his performances in the studio. So he felt that the kinds of things that he was doing in the studio would eventually be given to average listeners and that that would be a profoundly musical kind of engagement that listeners had not had since the 19th century when people played piano at home on a regular basis.
And in some ways, you know, I think some people have argued that hip hop and mashups and the kinds of things that have happened in the late 20th century and early 21st centuries are kind of something like what Gould was envisioning. People are basically taking charge of recordings and mixing them in unusual ways uh, and creating a new kind of music out of it. Professor Teberge took Gould's ambition to heart and pushed Sony Classical to give home listeners the same opportunity he had to mix the acoustic orchestrations. When I assembled the various tracks, it occurred to me that, you know, whatever I did would be just one version of a mix. And I talked with Sony at length and convinced them that when I was finished the project and we were going to release it, that they also take the eight-track recordings, the four stereo pairs, and release them as part of the disc so that not only would people learn from Gould's technique and what I'd done with the Scriabin, but they could take a shot at mixing their own version of the Scriabin if they liked. I bought the CD set and took a stab at creating my own acoustic orchestration. My first impulse as an acoustician was to find an ideal acoustical vantage point, and I quickly settled on a mix favoring the two middle microphone positions. But I soon found myself readjusting. In quieter, more delicate passages, I wanted to lean in and brought up the closest microphone to hear Gould's technique more clearly more intimately. It felt a bit voyeuristic, intrusive even, and I would then pull back, bringing up the furthest microphone as the piece became louder and more expansive. Bersh told me that the task of mixing made him into a more attentive and engaged listener than he had ever been before. As a listener, I felt the same way. As an acoustician, the experience also illustrated the futility of trying to achieve perfect acoustics, even for one piece of music. For someone like me, whose job it is to design concert halls where people are stuck in one seat, it was certainly sobering. If you would like to make your own acoustic orchestration, all you need is the two-CD set, available on Sony Classical from a number of online retailers, and a digital audio workstation, like GarageBand or Audacity. Try it, and see how Glenn Gould's spatial experiment transforms the way you listen. This issue of Attention was produced by Willem Boning. The senior editors were Joseph Bedford and Kurt Gambetta. The production consultant was Griffin Ofeish, and technical assistance was provided by Brendan Smith. A track list of all the music played in this piece is available at www.attentionjournal.com. Visit the website or find us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app to listen to previous issues and subscribe. Special thanks to Paul Teberge for the interview. Professor Teberge is one of the editors of a fascinating book called Living Stereo. Histories and Cultures of Multi-Channel Sound, available from online retailers. If you'd like to read more about Glenn Gould, I highly recommend the book The Glenn Gould Reader, edited by Tim Page. This issue was recorded in the Arup Sound Lab in New York City. Arup is an independent firm of designers, planners, engineers, and consultants working across every aspect of today's built environment, including acoustics. Attention is a part of the Architecture Exchange, a platform dedicated to catalyzing debate and discourse in architecture. This is Attention, the audio journal for architecture. That's pretty close, it could be better, but it's not bad for a rough try.
that's not bad, yeah.